Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We are taping today on Thursday, November 7th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning. And Caitlin Owens of Axios. Good morning. Later in the episode, I will talk to my KHN colleague, Laura Unger, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month about the perils of less than comprehensive health insurance. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So Tuesday was Election Day in several states, most notably in Virginia, Kentucky, and Mississippi. It was a pretty good night for the Democrats. The Republican won the open governorship in Mississippi, but in Kentucky, Democrat Andy Beshear has apparently defeated unpopular incumbent Matt Bevin. It is close enough that we might see a recount there or some such. We can talk about that. And in Virginia, for the first time since the 1990s, we'll have a legislature fully controlled by Democrats to go along with its Democratic governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general. So without getting into why these candidates won or lost, let's talk about what might happen. Uh, Kentucky first. Health was a prominent feature in both Bashir's campaign and in his victory speech Tuesday night. Here's a clip from that. Every day we're going to work to expand access to health care and we are going to fight to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Health care is a basic human right and my administration will treat it as such. So if Bashir, whose father was actually governor right before Bevan, does prevail and becomes governor, that's going to be really important for a bunch of Medicaid issues, yes? Caitlin, <laughs> how so? So Matt Bevan was, you know, a Republican governor of Kentucky. He was a strong ally for the Trump administration's uh, work requirements policy. And Kentucky was the first state to receive a work requirement um, approval from CMS. And that so, has not yet taken effect. That has not yet taken effect. Uh, and it's been, you know, it's mired up in lawsuits. So, um, you know, Bashir, now Bashir, if he prevails, he's saying that he'll rescind that work requirements policy and it will never go into effect, which, you know, has big implications on the Medicaid program. Bevan also said, I mean, I remember from election night of 2015, Bevan ran vowing to eliminate the Medicaid expansion. Well, actually, right? Bevan came to – Bevan was a wealthy businessman who was not a politician until he ran in, what, 2015? 2015. And he, his original was he was going to, you know, get rid of Obamacare in his state. And then he was going to get rid of Medicaid expansion. And he kept rolling it back because Kentucky was a state that under – Andy Bashir's father, Governor Steve Bashir, had implemented it. was the first southern state to implement it. It implemented it really well, and it was something like a half a million people were covered, mostly low income, Medicaid and the exchange. So what, what Bevan has the, – the, the recent argument from Bevan, the recent goal that he stated is if I don't get my work requirements, I'm going to undo Medicaid expansion, and these people will lose health care because he does not see it as a right. 
Um, whether he would have actually done that, given that he had rolled back every other promise, it's, I mean, in, in many ways, watching what happened in Kentucky in 2015, 2016 was, in fact, the story of what would happen in Congress in 2017, 2018. It's really easy to promise to take something away from people, and it's really hard to do it. Um, but anyway, right now, you have a, a really staunch advocate of the ACA. Um, coming in, assuming that the recanvassing or whatever else is next, uh, which could get pretty ugly from what we're reading. But assuming yeah, that Steve, apparently that, that, it can go to the legislature. We don't know how. You know, well, who knows? Yeah. It's 2020, 2019, anything can happen. Um, assuming that it's that's Andy Bashir's governor, there will not. I mean, it would be hard to see a work requirement going into effect in, in, in Kentucky. Also, I mean, Kentucky had its own, was one of the first states that had its own uh, exchange. Uh, and we are seeing some states going back to running their own health exchanges. Do we think Kentucky might do that too? Yeah, this was one of the things I wondered about in my daily on healthcare newsletter this week because I remember back during the Obama years, Kentucky was really upheld as this amazing example of a state that had really done a good job implementing the Affordable Care Act. When Bevin, and they did. Yeah, and they yeah. had, and they enrolled people well. The website was working well. And the thing was, when Bevin came in and, and said he was going to you know, repeal Obamacare, what he really end up, ended up just doing was getting rid of the website that allows people to sign up. Connect, so he sort of, it was called. That's right. Right. And so he, sort of, <laughs> so he sort of used that as, a, as an example of his rollback of the ACA. So it'll be interesting to see whether the state brings the website back. One of the many reasons they, they went from, to state exchanges originally was they thought it was something that Republicans might like because you do have more control over your insurance market if you run your exchange. You can use your, your leverage as regulators more effectively and in more ways if you run your own exchange. So, But it's also expensive to go back and forth and um, but the other way, interesting thing is that, that Andy Bashir supports abortion rights. And this is a conservative southern state. And I don't know that abortion rights helped him. I don't know that I don't know that we can make the case he won because of that, but it sure didn't defeat him. You're anticipating is... my next question. But let me let me <laughs> let's talk about Virginia first and then we'll come back right. to this. because um, Virginia, which now the legislature will be controlled by Democrats, and I think that's I know there's a couple of recounts and a couple of raises, but basically Democrats have won the legis- have won both houses of the state legislature. Um, the the reason that they had the Medicaid expansion with the Democratic governor and the Republican, the barely Republican legislature, is that they agreed to put in a work requirement for Medicaid now that there is a Democratic governor still, because he was only elected two years ago, and a Democratic legislature, what happens to the Medicaid work requirement in Virginia? I mean, it's pretty hard to see that going into effect as well. Democrats don't like work requirements. Um, They're not politically popular among among Democrats. So, you know, I I would guess that that's toast, too. Yeah. Whether they actively fight about it and change it legislatively or whether they just sort of let it drift because it's in the courts and Mm -hmm. just not do anything about it. I'm not sure we know what fights they want to pick and where they're going to spend their political capital. There's sort of an assumption that they're going to repeal the work requirement. I've talked... The legislature has to do that, right? Because it got written into the budget, I think. That's where it's a little bit different from states like Maine, where the governor, the incoming Democratic governor, just said, we're not going ahead with the work requirement. She wrote a letter to CMS, and that was kind of it. Yeah, but they could also just, they could just slow walk the implementation because it's the courts have not upheld it. So, I mean, it could just sort of waste away for a while and see what happens in 2020 presidentially. I don't. 
you know, I think that we're all anticipating they will do something to stop it. You know, there are other priorities, including gun control in Virginia. That was a big issue in that election, a controversial issue. I don't know what order they do things. Or I'm not enough of an expert on local Virginia politics to know what they do first, where they choose their battles. But I don't. we won't see it implemented. And I do think it's interesting, the common thread here is, you know, Medicaid is still a really popular political subject. Um, Which is just weird still. It is you weird. You never would have thought that really until 2017. It was always well, right. Medicare. It was never Medicaid. Right. And I think Republicans probably thought that they were on pretty solid ground up until 2017 opposing Medicaid expansion and tinkering with Medicaid. Um, but we're seeing again and again, both in national and now state elections for years now, it's it's a really powerful issue. And it's not a good one for Republicans, you know, if they're talking about rolling it back. Like, no one wants Medicaid. No one, meaning the majority of the public, wants Medicaid. The majority, even in red states we're seeing, they don't want Medicaid rolled back for anyone. Because even Republicans end up with their relatives on Medicaid, particularly, you know, middle class people with aging parents and grandparents. Their grandparents end up in Medicaid paid long-term care facilities. It's just, it touches, it touches a surprising number of people. I mean, much like Medicare, which has always been popular because everybody either is on or wants to be on or intends at some point to be on Medicare. I mean, we're getting to that point with Medicaid, aren't we? But there's more political division about work requirements. Some polls find that, you know, they are quite popular. It depends how you describe them and how you talk about them. So, um, And more popular among Republicans. Yeah, they're not considered an anathema by everybody outside of the Washington South policy fights that go on about it. right? And the it, judges who have ruled on it so yes. far. All right. Well, I am also getting a lot of email from reproductive health advocates to what you were suggesting before, Joanne. They are taking credit for some of these Democratic wins. They did pull out a lot of stops. There were a lot of ads that I saw and they were canvassing and more. Um, how much they contributed to the final outcome is not known. I have not actually seen any exit polls yet. Still, I think it is fair to say that this will take at least some pressure away from creating more abortion restrictions, right? I mean, you were talking about Andy Bashir in Kentucky. I mean, it's one thing to say that they're not going to, you know, they're not going to roll back some of their anti-abortion laws, but one would well, certainly assume they're not going to add anymore. Right. And they, the because he wouldn't sign them. And he, in fact, as Attorney General of the state, he said he wouldn't enforce some of them. The, the, some of the, the, the uh, very restrictive ones they passed are not going to be held up by the lower courts because they're incompatible with Roe. And, the, you know, like with these other states, it's all going to depend on the Supreme Court and that's going to take a while. So, um, no, he's not going to sign any restrictive or uh, the other thing about him is, you know, he was the attorney general when Bevin was governor. They're on the opposite sides on the ACA case. So, you know, I mean, they're on the opposite sides of almost anything. But the the particular maybe they have the same sports teams. I don't know. But other than that, the the um, you know, that the attorney general was defending Obamacare in court and the governor was supporting the other case. I don't think they probably like each other very much. (laughs) Although the the incoming attorney general in Kentucky is a Republican. So you'll have the opposite, right? Yeah. 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 So I've been wondering what's going to happen with that case. Are they going to now join alongside the Republicans on attacking the ACA? I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. He, I, he didn't talk about it. No, he didn't. The attorney general elect, he didn't talk about his intentions there. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, there have Which been is a, telling yeah, in, in and of itself. I mean, switches as there other, yeah. in other states. I was just going to say, yeah, Maine was a remember. Uh, Governor LePage, I believe, was one of the people. This is, the, of course, the Texas case that we are still waiting for that yeah. ruled the AC AAC unconstitutionally. It was mostly a Republican attorneys general, but there were two governors. And, yeah. and so when it switched in Maine, they just dropped out. We all go on record right here, right now, saying that if the court 
the Fifth Circuit does this the day before Thanksgiving, all of us will be very annoyed. Yes. Ooh, beyond annoyed. <laughs> Way beyond annoyed. <laughs> so last year, the ruling That's came right. on December 14th. So, like everybody's so Christmas maybe parties, that timeline. Right, <laughs> right, right. So maybe that timeline is more yes, And it was late, too. I was at a Christmas party. It was like 8 o'clock at night. And the, yeah. political, the political holiday party was going on at that very moment. And yeah. it was the day before open enrollment was scheduled to, to end. end. So it probably caused a lot of confusion for people who were signing up. Yes, well, we could, we could see that again this year. All right. Well, speaking of elections having consequences, Brian Kemp, who won his own squeaker of an election to become governor of Georgia last year, has unveiled two proposals. One would expand Medicaid, but only very partially, perhaps covering an estimated 50,000 of roughly half a million Georgians who'd be eligible under a full expansion which would be 90% paid by the federal government. Uh, Kemp's other proposal would reconfigure how the marketplaces work for the Affordable Care Act, making eligible for federal subsidies some types of insurance that don't meet the current requirements for comprehensiveness. Kemp's argument is that these plans would be cheaper and better than no insurance. That's been the argument all along. On the other hand, as we will see in a few minutes in our Bill of the Month interview, sometimes people buy insurance that leaves out benefits that they think they won't need, and then they end up needing them and finding themselves with the big bill. So let's talk about the Medicaid part of this first. Any chance this is going to happen? The, even the Trump administration has not been very sort of favorable to these will expand part of Medicaid. So it's weird. Um, I spent some time trying to – there's two things here, right? So first of all, there's the work requirements attachment to the, the partial expansion, and then there's the partial expansion itself. So uh, Georgia, you know, Kemp and his aides are making the argument that the, the work requi- requirements piece is different from other states' work requirements that have gotten struck down because those were retroactive. So these were states that had already expanded Medicaid. They were trying to apply the work requirements to people who had already received coverage. Um, and that's the, so they're making the case that since these people don't already have coverage, it's not going to be taking coverage away from anyone if it's they lose it. It's just going to be leaving them without any coverage. Right, right. So but then so that's one issue. But then what I've spent some time and can't figure out, um, there might just not be a good answer, is why. So Utah did something similar with a partial expansion, but they asked for full federal funding for it. And CMS said no. Um, And we should explain that partial partial expansion means that they only expand up to 100 percent of poverty instead of 138 percent, which is what the ACA called for. Right. And so so it's I can't figure out why Georgia thinks that CMS would approve theirs when they didn't approve Utah's. Um, you know, apparently they have a fallback plan where they'll ask for not full funding, so partial funding for a partial expansion. Uh, but that's not what they, they're asking for at the moment. And um, I can't really square that circle. <laughs> I get another thing, you know, all the Republican governors who are trying to sort of push back at Medicaid without, you know, looking like they're anti-Medicaid because, as we just discussed, Medicaid is actually surprisingly popular. Right. What about the exchange part of this? I, I feel like this is the first state yep, that's lawsuit. actually – well, yeah, obviously lawsuit. <laughs> but I mean, it's sort of this interesting conundrum, which is that, you know, they would have what and we've talked about copper plants. The, the, the plans are ranked by how generous they are, according to metal. So now we have the lowest currently is bronze and it's bronze, silver, gold, platinum. And there has been talk since the ACA was passed about adding a level below bronze called that they would call copper um, that would basically be sort of, sort of a catastrophic plus. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. basically. Catastrophic plus not that much. But, and and that yeah. sounds, on the one hand, that sounds like what he's talking about. On the other hand, it sounds like he's, I think those plans would cover all of the... They'd have to cover the benefits, but you would you as the patient would have to pay a larger share of it. It's an actuarial value thing, which we're not going to try to explain. It's how much comes out of your pocket is the easy way to explain it. So you still have the benefits, but you have to put, you, you pay less and you get less. But these would basically not necessarily have all the benefits. Right. But these would right. be more like the short term. I'm not even sure why they need to do it because there are short-term plans. Which but you can't get subsidies for this. He wants, he no, wants but you to can provide get the, uh, subsidies for these not comprehensive that's plans. That's not – I'm not sure that they're going to allow that. Didn't Idaho have something like that when, in their waiver? That they, that they had been working on before the Trump administration, though, put out its guidance about what states could do the on 1332. But even then, it's just – you know, legally, they're going to have a hard time. Well, first, first of all, they're not going to be able to do it without litigation, like absolutely right. everything. Yeah. You know, we just need like a little button that we press that squeaks lawsuits. And <laughs> so we know it'll be a court battle. I don't think another state has tried to do exactly this. So we don't know what CMS will do, but they sometimes don't do what you expect. But Every once kind of, in a while, they surprise you. And it's kind of weird, though, because the question, you know, just getting ahead on the lawsuit thing, it's almost like does a 1332 waiver override the statute of the ACA? You know, like is it... And particularly because the waivers, can't. it's it's yeah. guidance. They, it's weird. They, yeah. it, because 1332, because there's so many permutations of things a state could do, even the Obama never, administration left it as guidance. They never actually wrote ironclad regs because there's like infinite. Yeah. Yes, right. But, but they get, have pretty strong guardrails. Well, would, and those on both sides of the debate on 1332 have really ended up disappointed. States that have wanted to do public options, that have wanted to do single payer, states that are more conservative, that want to do what we're seeing in Georgia, they keep running up against these guardrails. And that's why most of the 1332 waivers we've seen have been these reinsurance programs that essentially funnel federal funds into the marketplace that help pay really high cost claims so that premiums can go down for everyone and that are really bipartisan. And have worked. And where reinsurance was written into the ACA originally, so it yes. complies with the rest of the law. Yeah. So and that, that's it's hard we're... to explain, but it yeah. works. It works, yeah. right? It has, in the, in the, we I give you a... some money and premiums come down. Right. Yeah. Well, we give, no, if you, the most expensive people get their claims right. paid somewhere else. Right. So the insurance companies can afford to, they right. don't have to worry about those people, so they can afford to offer lower premiums to everybody else, and it has worked. And mm-hmm. and I guess we will see. I, just, I find this interesting because I feel like, I mean, not so much the Medicaid part, but the marketplace part is kind of a novel question that we haven't really grappled with, at least lately. And I thought something that was interesting too um just maybe it's not that interesting but they but they he wants to allow people who can't afford their employer insurance to be able to like but it's offered um they just can't afford it they he wants them to be able to receive subsidies to buy individual market insurance which um well you can already i mean that's in the law to, no, to some extent it depends it's the definition of affordable i mean right. it's a pretty high threshold yes. the court it's law like, it's like nine, nine and a half percent and it only applies to the the, the worker individual. not the family right. so what was that was called the family glitch which is not something we've heard talked about recently but there's problems with i mean there are problems for people affording their employer their employer right. insurance so you can get subsidies if you fall below that threshold for, but if it's just a lot of money for you and your family, you can't get the subsidies. I don't think that that is actually um, – I mean, I haven't read the wording of the exact waiver. I think there are probably some 
people on the other side who would like to see people be able to get right. exchange subsidies if they're absolutely for you know their families and yes. so forth. They're not affordable under under employer sponsor. A- another concern that dates back it is, it is ten years ago. Actually, I believe it is ten years ago today that the House passed the Affordable Care Act, which makes me feel really extra old. So, well, let us talk about the presidential campaign. We have had now- everybody at the family was at this table was like alive and conscious by then, Julie. So yes. it's not like some things that you and <laughs> That's I did. True. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I was we, alive and conscious, yes. <laughs> we, we have had the better part of a week to digest Senator Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All plan and her proposals to pay for it. I want to talk substance first, and then we'll talk politics. So substantively, if the plan were to happen as it's laid out, does it seem like it would work with its financing? Could the U.S. ever really pay doctors and hospitals basically Medicare costs? The answer is yes, <laughs> but like we could. <laughs> Obviously, but what would happen? There'd be a huge dislocation. But it also, I mean, part of what's behind Warren's different number than the 20, 20 instead of $30 trillion is one of her advi- – I mean, I haven't talked to Don Berwick, but we all know that he uh, he's one of her advisors. And I mean, I have talked to him, but not about this, um, that he really believes, you know, roughly 30 percent of health care is wasted. Right. And many academic and, and policy experts believe that number. So, you know, that's not the only way she gets to 20 from 30. There are also drug cost pressures and things like that. But I think part of it is, you know, and if sort of using a global budget and making people figure out how to stay within the budget – that you get rid of the waste. So that's part of it. But we all know that we've been talking about this 30% waste for many, many years. It was incentives to change it in the ACA. There have been some successes, but clearly we were not in a waste-free, perfect utilization world. We're still in a very fee-for-service, screwed-up incentives, overutilization in some areas and underutilization in others. Things haven't been fixed. Is this the next fix? Uh, it's certainly hard to figure out. You know, she's not setting the rates for every doctor in every hospital, which lets her say, you know, I can protect the rural hospitals because it's not a rigid price basically, for all. It, what it looks like is that she's basically codifying all of the adjustments that have been made in Medicare over the years. So you get in rural hospitals get special adjustments. Teaching hospitals get special adjustments. There are, you know, basically, you know, different kinds of hospitals. There's long-term care hospitals and rehab hospitals that get special kinds of adjustments. It looks like she would just sort of codify that. But before right, we get but, to, oh, go ahead. I mean, taking, changing the trajectory of spending by that much in a short period of time is a big dislocation. And um, whether you could do it on paper versus whether you could do it in the messiness of the real world and get it all right, it's a big lift. <laughs> it is. And, but just for some context, um, you know, actually, I was looking at an OECD, OECD report that came out this morning, um, yesterday. It's worth remembering that we are a huge outlier in how much we spend and we don't get better quality care for it. So when we're talking about what would happen, who knows what would happen in the U.S. We have our own system, but other countries are able to squeeze all that money out and not suffer from it. So well, the difference is they started their system so much earlier back when, you know, you didn't have all these high prices, when the mm-hmm. government was able to step in and cover a lot of people and essentially set up the healthcare system that they all have today. Really, what we're looking at now is how do you, you know, go from some hospitals, some, some get almost twice as much as Medicare rates for certain procedures. And so how do you then square what they're making now and how 
have them in the next 10 years make so much less without making staff cuts, without making, um, you know, other changes. She makes a lot of very aggressive assumptions that other outside experts have also taken into account. But she just sort of decided that it's going to cost less and and then did the math to sort of reverse engineer that that it would cost Mm -hmm. less. So, um, you know, a lot of outside groups seem pretty um, skeptical of the math. It's like one of the things that Caitlin said earlier about Medicaid. It's easier to not give something than to take something away. And in this case, all of that 30 percent of waste is somebody's income. Uh, yeah. I mean, so what Warren basically says is like, like I mean, healthcare is big business in the U.S. She basically says we're not going to do that. And really abruptly, we're going to switch it from being on a budget or from being big business where people make a lot of money from it to being on a budget where you don't make as much money from it or any money for it potentially. And yeah, that's going to be like to that like that transition like actually making that happen i have a hard time believing that it's what's Our also interesting is that she hasn't backed away from a lot of the Bernie Sanders promises about no copays, no deductibles, everything is paid for, whether it's mental health, whether it's prescription drugs, emergency care, everything Long-term that you could care. really yes, and, mm-hmm. and care for people who are living in the US illegally. So in fact that's it, one of her really big funding mechanisms, which is a whole nother story. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. That that goes into the calculus too. And so, you know, they keep comparing what we have here to what other countries have. Other countries don't provide all of this. They allow private health insurance to stay in the game. So it's interesting that she didn't turn away from that because she could have said, for example, if you're very wealthy, you're going to get, you know, a $5,000 deductible, something like that, that might have changed the math in, mm-hmm. more in her favor, too. Well, obviously, she's been taking a lot of incoming from across the spectrum. She's kind of united everybody, um, clearly from the non-Medicare for all types like Joe Biden. Here he is from an interview last week. She's making it up. May she's making look, nobody thinks it's twenty trillion dollars. It's between thirty and forty trillion dollars. Every major independent study that's gone out there that's taken a look at this, there's no way. So is he right? <laughs> well, all of these are sort of made up numbers, right? right? I mean, every healthcare plan from across the political spe- I mean across the Democrats, everybody no one has legislative language that has been vetted and gone through the CBO. And even then, it's a guessing game. So, you know, the Democrats are spending their time screaming at each other about imaginary numbers, which, you know, we'll see how that works for them politically. That was the, the, that was the line in the Saturday Night Live skit last week about Elizabeth Warren when she somebody asked her about the numbers. Should, when you get to this, the numbers that are this big, they're all made up anyway. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the CBO has been wrong about a lot of things, including the mandate, which is a whole nother you know, podcast we can, I won't go there right now. But the idea that the change is this radical the most radical to the healthcare system ever. I mean, bigger than introducing Medicare, bigger than the ACA, bigger than anything we've ever done, could go off flawlessly under any of the schemes they're talking about for the money they're talking about. I mean, with Obamacare, they couldn't even build a website. So this is, this is you know, as Biden would probably say, it's hard stuff. So the the... It's also, you know, in some ways it's the, you know, having a debate about the values is one thing. Having a debate about made up numbers is another. I've been curious about why they And I don't mean to be you. derogatory about one particular plan. I mean, everybody who's talking about a campaign platform and hasn't gone through the rigor of writing the legislative language, having it analyzed, having it vetted, and having it scored, campaign pledges are our best guesses. They may be honest. I'm not implying that they're made up in a, in a nefarious way, but they're not a piece of legislation is actually going to look like if we ever got to that point. 
Um, I was just going to say I've been curious about why they haven't turned more to this value side of, you know, this is the right thing to do instead of looking so much at the numbers. Because if they turn out to be wrong and they're looking at all of this and then what do they do? Do they raise middle class taxes? Do they uh, pay providers even less? Do they leave certain people out? Um, you know, we we know from looking at different emergency room data, for example, and covering people that um, sometimes, no, it's not cheaper to cover people. They still then end up being put on care that is chronic care and taking medications that are expensive and everything. So maybe it's not less expensive, but maybe it's the right thing to do is what, you know, progressives would say. And I haven't really heard that so much in the narrative on the campaign trail. I've actually, I'm curious about well, the politics. They're, oh, I ahead. mean, they're sort of assuming that they, I mean, they're not articulating it, but I think that's sort of the assumption that Democrats think healthcare is a human right and Republicans don't. And but you Andy Bashir just said it in his <laughs> election night speech. Kevin's right. I mean, they're not articulating that. But, and they're, but they're also in the prime, you know, that would be a versus a Republican race rather than you know, when they agree on things, they're not going to debate what they agree. And that's why we're hearing about health care and not hearing about climate. I feel yeah. like like Warren obviously got backed into a corner because she has uh, a plan for, she everything. Has a plan for everything, right. but she didn't have a plan for this. And and to her credit, I mean, there was a lot more specifics in what she put out than there has been even in what Bernie wrote in his damn bill. Oh, Bernie's been left, left totally off the yeah. hook here. Yeah. Yeah. But but I'm wondering just politically whether this really was a good thing for her, even though she didn't have a lot of choice, um, because now it's going to make it hard for her to pivot if she wins the nomination. No, into a, Obama ran against the mandate and everybody, they're, yeah. they're professional pivoters. That's, you know, politicians know how to pivot. And I don't think that she's completely boxed in. I think that people are not talking a, a, a lot. I mean, people are talking about the 20 versus 30. But I mean, this immigration thing that well, uh, is, is also, I mean, one of her funding mechanisms is passing the 2013 immigration bill. Well, if they couldn't do it in 2013, it has, immigration has not gotten to be less I did. I well, saw that part. And we should say that, that, that one of the assumptions is that, that everybody who's here illegally becomes legal and pays taxes. And those taxes are part of her funding mechanism. But I would like to think that if the Congress is in a place where it's going to pass Medicare for all, it could probably also pass immigration reform. This is also probably true. <laughs> You know, and I think, you know, just going back to your question about whether it's made up or not, I think that like the immigration thing is a perfect example of like, is it like made up doesn't have to mean like it doesn't add up. It can also just mean that it's super impractical and based on these assumptions or that improbable. are like really or improbable or absurd, you know, like um, and I think that that's and when I look at it, it's kind of like, OK, like this adds up probably in theory. I'm not an economist, but like the no, I get where she's getting the numbers from. But yeah, like and then when you, you're talking politically, it's kind of like in what world? I mean, I, I, well, she I can also see says she's going to get rid of the filibuster. So. Right, I, right, right. I mean, I can see the world, right? But it's like it's very far from the one that we're in today. Yes, that is for sure. But but the math is tough. I mean, she's assuming administrative costs are going to be the same as they are under Medicare now. But Medicare for all is really different from what Medicare looks at, looks like now. So there's going to be a lot more provisions. I mean, generally, when you cover more people with more generous coverage, yes, it's going to cost more. Um, and, you know, so she had this calculator on her website where you could basically type in how much you were spending on your health care now. I don't know if you all played around with it a little bit, but you could really put in whatever number you wanted. And it said that's how much your health care was going to be saved, like $23 trillion. It spit that number back out at you. So, so they have so to work on that. Speaking of Medicare that we have now, and I feel like this is something that completely confuses the public because Medicare for all, and this I think 
Medicare, I would tweet, the Medicare we have now is not the Medicare and Medicare for all. And Caitlin, you wrote a really good story this week that sort of talked about yeah. the Medicare that we have now and how different it really is. Um, it, yeah. it doesn't pay all of your expenses. You know, I was I, two different studies came out on the same day. So then I wrote about them both in my newsletter the next day. Both of them showed that basically sick people in Medicare, which a lot of older people end up having health conditions, obviously, they have trouble paying for their Medicare. Um, and one of the reason is Medica- reasons is Medicare doesn't have an out-of-pocket cap. So, you know, if you're really sick, your bills just keep adding up. Um, but then also something problematic is that Medicare doesn't cover long-term care, which, you know, if you have a chronic co- condition like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia, that's a big part of you're using a lot of long-term care. You're in a facility. You need a lot of assistance. Um, but it's mostly not medical, so Medicare doesn't cover it. Right, right. Um, it's mostly activities of daily living. Right. But, of course, it's related to your medical condition. Um, you know, so when you look at the data, like, it's the bills add up for these people with these conditions. Oh, yeah. Tens of um, thousands of dollars. Right, right. So, the you know, all this is to say, say is we're debating Medicare for all. I mean, our, it's not really Medicare because it pays for everything and it's free health care. But and then our current Medicare program, I mean, there are seniors who they're falling through the cracks, especially if they're sick. And I think this is just sort of the way we think about it. I mean, because I constantly get mail, you know, they talk, I heard you talking about Medicare for all. Well, you know, I'm on Medicare and it doesn't do X, Y or Z. It's like, yes, because they would be very different. But I think this is one. I mean, the advantage of calling it Medicare for all is that people who have Medicare basically like it. The disadvantage is that what they're describing as what we would go to is not really what we have now. Right. There's no once everybody's in the system, there's no cost shifting. There's no private contractors taking some of the costs that make Medicare per se look more efficient. There's no um, the, the Medicare now is one third private insurance, roughly one third private insurance through Medicare Advantage, um, where there are catastrophic protections, but there are other trade offs. It's not you know you have limited networks. The um, people are very confused by this, and it doesn't mean that. In, I mean, many of these things are faults of Medicare. I mean, these are things that advocates of Medicare for all want to correct. They want more coverage. They want less out-of-pocket or no out-of-pocket. They want long-term care. They don't want seniors to go broke or anyone else to go broke because they got sick. But the practicality, what is Medicare, confuses people when they think everybody gets that with both its benefits and its flaws. Well, and I wonder if just when you're like if we're creating this situation politically where, you know, if we're talking about Medicare for all, Medicare for all, everyone loves their Medicare. So, like, let's go to Medicare for all where then we all forget, including politicians, that there are real problems here. And people are like, if you want to help people in a practical way, here's an area where you could focus on. Right. And, you know, to their credit, some lawmakers are right now and they're drug pricing reforms. They're trying to put an out of cap. Yeah, and the house, cap. the house right. has a bill that, um, you know, adds vision, dental, hearing aids to Medicare. All the right. things that Medicare doesn't cover. All right. the things they don't cover. So they and, and that happened right around the time when when Trump was pushing Medicare Advantage plans. So it was interesting. It kind of went under the radar. But, yeah, they moved really quickly on that. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's as much news as we can do for this week. Um, now we will play my interview with KHN's Laura Unger. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. So here's the interview. <laughs> We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Laura Unger, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month. She's joining us from our Midwest Bureau in St. Louis. Hi, Laura. Hi, how are you? So tell us about this month's patient, who she is, what kind of interaction she had with the medical system. 
Uh, so her name is Arlene Phelan. Uh, she's 56. She lives in suburban Chicago. And she had a series of really awful losses that basically sent her on a spiral into a depressive episode that landed her in the hospital. And she's still very emotional months after this happened, as you can hear in her voice. Lost my husband, lost my dad, lost my mom, had to put my dog down. But losing my mom really knocked, knocked my feet out from under me. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, after the dust settled, you know, that's when the grief started to, you know, come in. So after this happened, she ended up drinking several beers and texting friends. And one friend got particularly worried about her and actually called 911. And that's how she ended up in the emergency room. So she ends up in the hospital eventually for several days, gets treatment, goes home. Everything seems better, right? Until, as we say, the bill came. Right. Then she ends up um, actually with a uh, $21,634 bill. And that was after it was reduced down by the hospital. And she is someone who is living under the poverty line. So this is a huge bill for her. She had insurance, right? She did. Uh, She had a type of plan called an association health plan. And it was purchased through Affiliated Workers Association. She paid $210 a month for it, but it doesn't cover mental health. Did she have any idea? I mean, most people will say, well, the Affordable Care Act requires that mental health be offered as a covered service in health insurance. So this is actually one type of plan that the Obama administration curtailed, but it's now permitted since the Trump administration gave the go-ahead for sales of these sorts of association plans. Uh, They were previously considered inadequate coverage, but they are allowed now. And she asked specifically about costs while she was in the hospital. I guess she knew that her plan wasn't that comprehensive. She did. She was concerned about cost, and she knew she didn't have mental health coverage uh, when she was at the hospital, too. I asked several times, what is this going to cost me? What is that going to cost me? I'm underinsured. And there were no answers. It was just like, it's been ordered, so just go with the program. And that's basically how she ended up with that, that big bill, yes? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. A lot of the bill of the month are people who had more comprehensive insurance, and they ended up sort of arguing about coverage. But it sounds like she's probably on the hook for this entire amount. She is, yes. She does not have mental health coverage, so and, and she knows she does not. And at this point, she wishes that she had gotten coverage that covered mental health. And how's she doing now? She's doing better, you know, uh, mental health-wise, uh, but she does not have a way to pay this bill. So, uh, so that's really troubling to her and, and upsetting her still. It's very frustrating and maddening and stressful. And it's unfair. Like, who can get away with that? So what can people do to prevent this kind of thing from happening to them? Experts have told me that um, people should really make sure that knowing what they're paying for when it comes to health insurance and knowing if they're getting a, a plan that adheres to the ACA so that they know that it covers mental health and substance use disorder. Uh, so so that's one thing. Um, also, just ask questions. Uh, ask questions when you're in the hospital. Um, ask questions to know what your coverage is. We do hear people say, well, I don't 
care that this plan doesn't cover mental health or substance abuse because I'm never going to need those services. Right. She wishes she could go back in time and buy a plan that does cover mental health because she now knows that so many people, including herself, you know, ends up with a mental health crisis. And, you know, it, it's not a rare thing to have a mental health crisis or to, to suffer from mental health problems. So uh, she really uh, advises everyone to make sure they have mental health coverage after this experience. And I guess when people are now out in the marketplace buying quote unquote insurance, they need to take better care to figure out what all that insurance covers. Exactly. Yeah, she definitely says that. And experts I've talked to say that as well. Uh, It can be confusing out when you're buying insurance, especially on the internet. There's things that maybe aren't what they seem to be. Uh, So it's buyer beware. All right. Well, Laura Unger, thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, we are back. It's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry. If you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week? You have you have another in, in a continuing series of extra credits. <laughs> I do. Um, so it's from Bloomberg Business Week, and it's by John Tazi, and the title is America's Largest Health Insurer is Giving Apartments to Homeless People, and John has done so many great stories on health insurance companies. Um, And it looks at how um, they are managing people's health conditions by, like what it says, by providing housing. Um, Because, you know, it's gotten really expensive to keep readmitting people to the emergency room um, as they face their chronic health conditions. It's really interesting. And he actually got to go and and check out this, this space. So I recommend everyone read it. Joanne. Um, We had a story this morning in Politico. It was a team-up between our environmental and health teams uh, by Sarah Overmull, Sarah Carlin-Smith, and Annie Snyder, and it's called How the FDA and EPA's Failure to Communicate Could Put Patients in Danger. And briefly, the gas, the chemical ethylene oxide, which I was surprised to see in the second paragraph, um, is toxic. It's it's cancer-causing. It is used to clean medical devices. Communities that have these plants... Some of the regulators in some of the states are shutting these plants down. But we don't have another way of sterilizing medical devices, and we're not talking tongue depressors. We're talking about pacemakers. We are talking about um, machinery that keeps premature babies alive in the NICU. These are things that the system needs, and there's a genuine threat that if they don't figure out some safe way of sterilizing them really fast, we will have shortages. It's about 20 billion devices a year affected. Caitlin. So uh, my story is um, in ProPublica by Marshall Allen. It's called How One Employer Stuck a New Mom with a $898,984 Bill for Her Premature Baby, which is a number so large it's hard to read out loud. And she worked for the hospital. And she worked. So the woman was an ER nurse for Dignity Health. So this is just kind of a one-off story. So basically what happened is her baby was born extremely premature. It was a traumatic experience for both the mother and the baby. And there was this glitch where she needed to, apparently the policy, she had to go online and sign the baby up for health insurance within a certain amount of time. She called instead. Um, they all they told her everything was fine. The hospital told her everything was fine. Turns out outside the window, she finds out that the baby is not enrolled in her employer's coverage plan. Um, so then she gets stuck with the bill. She fought it forever. They were making no exceptions for her, no allowances. You know, sorry, you didn't comply with the rules. Uh, you're stuck with this giant bill until ProPublica called. Um, and then all of a sudden, everything. 
they said, okay, we'll make an exception and enroll your oh, child in health insurance. That. It was a great it, story. Right, right, right. It's just another story to show, like, the, the flaws in our system. My favorite part was when they said, well, we told you about this. Yeah, and it was in the small print in her health plan that they had given her six years earlier, right? So, A, no one reads that. And, B, when you're going into premature birth and your baby, I mean, I almost had that happen to me. The last thing you're thinking about is, what did my insurer tell me six years ago on page 94? And she called. She called really quickly. Right. You yeah, know? Well, she called, I guess I think that the issue was she called the insurance company, but she had to sign up with the employer. I think that was the window that she missed. I mean... Well, either way, it's a great story. This yeah, is why people hate their health insurance. This is why people hate the, Yeah, and I, and I don't think it's so much of a one-off anymore. I mean, the amount of the bill is probably right. a one-off, but, but yeah, we seem to be getting lots Which of Which is them. when politicians who are against Medicare for all say people love their health insurance, all of us look like, like, excuse me? Yeah. No. Have you seen all of these one-off <laughs> stories? Well, it's crazy. Like, journalists have somehow become, like, the only way to get your medical bills covered. <laughs> yeah. Well, my story this week is by Joanne uh, in Politico. It's called Why North Carolina Might Be the Most Innovative Healthcare State in America. Uh, it's about two former Obama administration health officials uh, who ended up in North Carolina and are trying to do what everyone talks about, but few actually do get more value for each healthcare dollar we spend and recognize that social determinants of health, as Kimberly was just talking about, like housing, food, and transportation are as important to health as medical care. Um, It's a great story and a good sidebar, and I will link to both of them. So thank you, Joanne. That is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review, too. That helps other people find us. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Caitlin N. Owens. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Leonard K.L. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.